As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Bellow. If you're new to the podcast, each week my colleagues Joanne Freeman, Ed Ayers, Nathan Connolly, and I explore a different aspect of American history. As 2019 draws to a close, we thought we'd revive an old backstory tradition and look back on our favorite segments of the past year. With over 35 new episodes and hours of compelling storytelling, 2019 was a busy year for backstory. From topics such as blackface, technophobia, and Bison, we offered one of our most wide-ranging lineup of shows to date. While this year featured several celebrity guests in studio, our team also pursued stories that got us out of the office, recording interviews at sites all over the country. So today on the show, we're highlighting our favorite celebrity guest and hopping on the Backstory bus to revisit the best segments that took us to some pretty disparate locations. We'll travel to Louisiana to find out how one restored plantation is flipping the script on how slavery is portrayed to the public. And we'll talk to a certain plucky environmental activist about the work that inspired an Academy Award-winning movie. Over the years, I've done a lot of crazy things for backstory, but I've never thought I'd be floating around in salty water in a darkened isolation tank. When one of our producers asked if I'd be willing to jump into a tank and see what this wellness craze was all about, well, how could I say no? He never told me how long I'd actually be in the tank, though. So how long am I floating for? Oh, you'll be floating for 90 minutes. 90 minutes? What is that mean? like in base 10? <laughs> I, I, I don't think I can float for 90 minutes. Why? Had, it actually goes by really fast. I had like three minutes in mind. A lot of people who come out who have that same apprehension that you do, yeah. they come out on the other end and they're, they're very surprised as, All right. so as to how, how bad fast if we, it goes by. How bad if we compromise on something? Yeah. 
I like getting anxious just thinking about the notion of doing anything for 90 minutes. Um, uh, 45 minutes. I think that's very generous on my part. It sounds like you have a strong mind. But no, how about you just get in and we'll, we'll get you out. Oh. And you just stay in there. So here's the pods. <laughs> All right. And what if I don't float? I don't float so well. Did, did, did they tell we, you that? We floated any anybody from, you know, 40 pounds to 590 pounds. Okay. But we, all right. All right. Uh, and I just lie there and do nothing for 90 minutes. Yes. Can I use my cell phone? No. Uh, yes. I'm, I'm ready. You ready? Yeah. All right. Let's do this. So... All right. Am I listening to music while I'm in here? No, not right. for it's solitude. That's solitude. Yeah. Okay. Towel okay. right here, and uh, and then you're ready to step into the the pod. And basically, when you raise up on here, you can. You'll step in, and you'll grab this handle, and you will close the lid. I close the lid. Yeah, I, I'm not going to be in here with you. Okay. So. Um, All right. And I can open the lid. And you can open the lid at any time. Same way. Same. You're way. not going to lock it. There's no lock on it. There's no lock. Okay. No lock on it. Good. That's reassuring. All right. Keep in mind that, you know, you, you have this homogenous mixture in here, the water, you, and the air. And, you know, sometimes our brain really focuses on, okay, the temperature's not perfect. And then you're like, oh, I don't like the head pillow because I can feel it, or I'm bumping into the sides. Um, but the, the beautiful part about this, you know, homogenous environment in here is eventually it all becomes one. And so if you just let the mind go, you could even be on the side, you could have the head pillow on, but after five, 10 minutes, you're, that's just going to fade out. You're not even going to be able to feel it anymore. Okay. Um, so really just try and let go and relax. All right. Is Ready? there an exam afterwards? No. Okay. This will be the easiest thing you've ever done. <laughs> it already isn't. Brian, I, I have to ask you, you're going to have to tell me something about what it felt like to be in an isolation tank. I'm so curious. I am not one who truly knows what it is to have a panic attack, but <laughs> I have a feeling that when I said, how long am I going to be in this tank? Three minutes. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. Minimum 90 minutes. That's about as close to a panic attack, I think, as I've ever had. I felt <laughs> anxious. I felt uncomfortable. Well, so when you were in there for that scary 90 minutes, was there any point at which you sort of accommodated yourself to it and that kind of empty space began to feel, if not comfortable, then at least less threatening? Yes. I would say once I got through the first 10 or 12 minutes, I did achieve a kind of, I don't know, slightly different state. It was, it was somewhere between being awake and being asleep. I certainly never, never fell asleep. The thought of swallowing all that salt water really was something that kept me <laughs> and continues to keep me awake at night. But I did get in touch with a 
much more vivid recollection of some very early childhood memories. Um, wow. Yeah. So I certainly understand why people seek this out. So, Joanne, I am publicly making this offer right now. Uh-oh. I will pay for 90 minutes of floating for you oh, if man. you would like to do it. What do you think? You're going to take me up on that? Oh, boy. Pardon me? A kind of daredevil part of me, even though it sounded a little daunting at the beginning, is really, really curious. And the other part of me that really doesn't like being in water or the dark <laughs> is not so thrilled. <laughs> but I'm curious as heck, so ultimately I probably might do it. The Whitney Plantation sits on Louisiana's historic River Road, which runs along the winding Mississippi River between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Dotting River Road are 13 restored plantations open to the public, but Whitney is the only one that's completely dedicated to the history of slavery and enslaved people. Earlier this year, our producer Charlie Shelton Ormond traveled to Whitney to learn more. As you walk along the grounds of Whitney Plantation, you're guaranteed to hear two things, the steady buzz of summer cicadas and the chime of an old iron bell. Visitors are encouraged to ring the bell once in memory of the people who endured slavery on the plantation. I think that our memorial focus is even above our focus on enslavement. Ashley Rogers has been the executive director of Whitney since the plantation opened as a museum in late 2014. The memorial focus is what makes us so unique because we don't have a lot of spaces in this country where it is acceptable to uh, remember and to mourn the history of enslavement and the people who were enslaved. And that is where we center our visit and we really want people to not only learn but to also reflect. As the only plantation in Louisiana that's devoted entirely to slavery, Rogers says Whitney has a duty to educate its visitors without sugarcoating history. The reason why plantations are here is to enslave people. I mean, that's it, right? So if you do a tour and slavery is optional on the tour, uh, as some of them are, well, isn't that kind of funny? Because slavery was definitely not optional in a plantation. It is the entire reason the plantation exists. And also, something that I talk about when I talk to interpreters and things is that even if we think numerically um, about who lived on the plantation, plantations are black spaces. The majority of people who experienced life on a plantation were black. And so if all we're talking about are the white people who lived on the plantation, we are really missing the majority of life experience on that plantation. The plantation sits on 250 acres of land in the small town of Wallace on the west bank of the Mississippi River. Joy Banner grew up in Wallace and is a descendant of enslaved folks at Whitney. Now she's the museum's director of communications. She says for descendants like herself, the popular plantation sites on River Road are oftentimes contentious symbols. I'm from this area, and 
plantations are in the foreground um, along this river road and, and as part of our lives. I mean, they're always there. And because of it, I think that we as a community have a complicated relationship with plantations. You know, these are very painful reminders. And then it's difficult when you see plantations and they are continuing to get economic benefit. And, you know, and they're literally, you know, it's in the middle of descendants and we're not receiving any of those economic benefits. In addition to her job at Whitney, Banner is also active in the community. She regularly attends parish council meetings and is the president of a community focus group. We talk about plantations exclusive of the community, you know, and exclusive of what is happening in the present. And I would hope that all plantations and all these sites would feel an obligation to the descendants. Um, I'm proud to be a descendant here. And, you know, I, I know sometimes people have a, a strange reaction to it, but I I'd certainly, when I'm here, I'm, I'm proud to tell the story of Whitney because it is a story of my family. It is a story of my community. But I think that Whitney is one of the plantations or maybe the only plantation that the community feels is at least, you know, paying acknowledgement to the system um, in a way that they feel should be acknowledged. Today, Whitney is well-known along River Road, but that wasn't the case the day it opened five years ago. And I was out there ready to meet the throngs of people who were coming. Four people came. Two of them were lost looking for the Laura Plantation, but I kept them there to take the tour. John Cummings is the founder of Whitney. He's a former attorney from New Orleans. He bought the property back in 1999 from a petrochemical company that planned to build a factory on the land. After Cummings read more about the history of slavery at the plantation, he got to work turning it into a museum. Here's what happened. We got it. And again, we didn't know what the hell we were going to do. We really didn't. Uh, most people operate under uh, a regime of ready, aim, fire, and we operated under ready, fire, and a name and see if we did anything good. And if we didn't, just go back and change it. He spent 15 years and $10 million creating what's there today. Whitney has come a long way since four people showed up on opening day. They expect more than 100,000 visitors by the end of this year. It's just rewarding that the people who go there go back and tell everybody about it, and then they come. And so what we're doing here representing the facts of slavery, unvarnished. And sometimes they're not pleasant, but we think it's important that people come to see them because these facts were deliberately withheld from them in their education. I asked Cummings what it's like for him walking around Whitney and what really stands out on the grounds. This church that we have, it's the Antioch Church, but it was originally anti-yoke. It was built by men and women who had been freed from slavery for only two years. Okay, so we'll just pop in here real quick. It's a very old church. It was built by formerly enslaved people. When the congregants purchased the land, in uh, 1868, it was two parcels of land in Paulina. And in that document, it says that the purchase of the land was for the purpose of building the anti-yoke Baptist 
church. And it's anti, capital A, N-T-I, hyphen, capital Y, O-K-E. So it's, it's in there multiple times. We know that's not a mistake. And it's something really interesting and quite beautiful, I think, to us that these formerly enslaved people named their congregation anti-yoke, and a yoke being a symbol of oppression and slavery that for them was only three years in the past. There were three As we stood inside the church, Rogers told me about its first congregants in the 1860s, how they had to pull all their money and resources together to buy the land and build the church in Paulina, Louisiana, and how formerly enslaved people built churches like this to unite their families and communities. I think that's something that you can feel in a space like this. I, I love to think about what would those first worship services have felt like for those formerly enslaved people who had had to pray in, in secret, who had had to hide you know, their uh, familial or community connections because of the structure of slavery? What would it have felt like to be free in a space like this? And it's still- Scattered throughout the church are more than a dozen life-size statues of children. They're meant to give an imagined face to the kids who were enslaved at the plantation. As we walked across the grounds, Rogers told me of other ways visitors are encouraged to remember those who endured slavery at Whitney. For example, at the beginning of the tour, everybody gets a card profiling a different person. So many museums do that, and they do it in a way where it's like, then you find out what happened to your person, and like, you are that person for the day, and that's not our intention. <laughs> we never tell people that's what it is, but they assume it, so they'll walk in and they'll go, oh, I'm Hannah today. And we're like, no, you're not. <laughs> I mean, we really wanted that those tags to be a way for you to keep a person with you, keep a memory of a person with you. I bristle at the idea of trying to make people imagine that they are enslaved people. Nobody alive today can imagine what it was like to be an enslaved person who was taken from Africa and forced across the Atlantic in the Middle Passage and enslaved here, right? This is, even to the extent that there's modern-day slavery, we're talking about fundamentally different things. We just can't understand that that way. And I don't want to put a visitor in that space. As Rogers showed me the rest of the plantation, a summer thunderstorm was brewing in the distance. But before the rain swept in, she showed me inside one more building. So this is an original slave cabin, which still has cypress planks. You can see that there's no insulation here. It's a very, very simple style of construction. It would have been cold. It would have been hot. The rain came in. Um, and usually, you know, during slavery, cabins like this, so two different families would have lived in a cabin of this size. So you have basically a room and a half for a whole family. How many people would live in the cabin depends on the size of the family. So I'll give you an example. So there was a woman on this plantation. Her name was Francoise. And um, she had her first child at the age of 13. Um, she continued to have children. She had five children by the time she was 23. But that means that one side here, this front room with a bed or just pallet on the floor would be the, the sleeping quarters, the living quarters, the dining quarters, the cooking quarters for Francoise and whoever else she's living with, which could be to the order of five more people. The storm soon arrived with a steady downpour, so we retreated back to the Welcome Center. Inside the building, there's a long wall that's filled with notes from visitors recounting their experience at the museum, like a big public guest book. 
both Rogers and Joy Banner say even though Whitney grapples with a tough topic, they're encouraged to see how the site changes those who visit. You know, when we talk about slavery and public interpretation, one of the things we talk about is that the words that we have as visitors to describe our experience don't always fit with what we learned. So when you're learning about the history of trauma and tragedy, it's hard to say that you had a good visit or that you are happy that you came. But that impulse is there, right? So I always say to visitors when they reach out to me that I'm glad that they had an impactful visit. I'm glad that they had a meaningful visit. I encourage anyone who has a historical site or a home or attraction um, where slavery or a difficult topic is involved, you know, I would encourage them to embrace it because people want the truth and they appreciate the truth. That story was brought to us by Backstory producer Charlie Shelton Ormond. Helping Charlie tell that story was Ashley Rogers, John Cummings, and Joy Banner. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So temperature is personal. Everybody's idea of what's comfortable is unique. This is true for my wife and me, who've been married a long time. And over all that period of time, we've noticed that it seems to be warmer at her end of the room than it is at mine. Ember Wave is there when you need relief. All you do is press to activate Ember Wave for a burst of heating or cooling. This sensation pairs with your body and mind to make you feel more comfortable in a matter of minutes. Ember Wave provides comfort in unpredictable climates, relief from stress, and support for sleep. Some places you can use Ember Wave include your over-air-conditioned office, restaurants, airplanes, after workout, malls in the car, crowded public places, and more. Ember Wave was invented by three MIT scientists and was named one of Time Magazine's Best Inventions of 2018. It's been reviewed by a number of leading technical publications like Wired, Fast Company, and GMA. Listeners get $50 off for the holidays if they go to emberwave.com backstory. That's E-M-B-R-W-A-V-E dot com slash backstory. Now, as we heard earlier in the show, floating in an isolation tank was, to put it mildly, out of my comfort zone. But I thought we'd finish with a celebrity interview that kept me within the cramped but familiar walls of our recording studio. One of the most successful films of the 2001 Academy Awards was Aaron Brockovich, which brought the story of the fight against corporate negligence and water contamination in California to a worldwide audience. 
Julia Roberts picked up the Oscar, but the real star was the environmental activist who campaigned against energy giant Pacific Gas and Electric. I do remember sitting with Ed in his law library. That's Erin Brockovich, the real Erin Brockovich. The Ed she's talking about was Ed Masry, her friend, boss, and partner in the landmark lawsuit. We get put in a box. I've always been trying to break out of that box because I'm a dyslexic. And Ed, when we first began, by law, was put in a box. And he says, you know, kid, we're not going to be able to do this because of a statute of limitations. And for me, I, I couldn't accept that. I said, Ed, you've got to be kidding me that you're that, what? So we're just going to give up that you would even say that to me as I'm sitting here in your law library. Let's look at all the law books in here. How did these laws happen? Because somebody made a challenge. Somebody went out on a limb to fight for a law, to change a law, create a law. You're not going to do that because that's what I thought lawyers do. And, you know, Ed and I had that kind of relationship, and now it was competitive. And he was like, well, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I got the chance to talk with Aaron. We chatted about what it's like trying to hold major corporations accountable, why seeing is believing, and the Post-it notes that help keep Aaron motivated day in and day out. Welcome to Backstory, Aaron. Hi, Brian. You grew up in Kansas, and I'm curious to know what your relationship to the environment was in Kansas when you were growing up. Well, I'm so glad you brought that conversation up. I was born and raised in Lawrence, Kansas, and uh, I'm a mixture of both my mom and my dad. My dad was an engineer, and my mom was a journalist. So I guess my Snoopy behavior comes from my mom's side. But my dad actually was an industry man, um, retired from the United States government, but most of his career ran the pipelines for Texaco. And he's the very one that taught me at a very young age the value of water and land and our correlation and our health to it and the importance of protecting it. So when I got involved in Hinckley, so much of that developed for me. It was a natural fit. Well, I want you to take us back to the moment where you began to suspect that something was unfolding. Take us back to the moment where you were going through these real estate records and discovered something untoward. You know, it's been what, well, I guess we're coming up on the 20-year anniversary of the film Aaron Brockovich, and it's really taken me all that time to kind of look back and put together what I was doing. When I first um, saw the records, I was a single mom. I needed a job. I wanted to do a good job. And when the box came to me and Ed said, you know how to open this file, uh, to be honest with you, I actually didn't, but I wasn't going to tell him that. And I began to look at the documents. Isn't that a funny thing? You actually pick something up and read it. There was bar graphs in there from the lab work. So the lab work of the kids was done on a, on a chart. So you could clearly, like, see, you know, the white count, the blood count, the T cells, all of that listed off on the left. And then a graph of where it should be. So I could clearly see, wow wow, these are way off the chart. And as a single mom uh, and adoring my children, I was like, I just think that's odd. Uh, If this were me, I'd be asking, why is my child's hemoglobin so high? Or 
why is my child's white count so low? I mean, I can clearly see coming from a lab that this isn't right. And can you give us a little context about the file in general? As I understand it, it was primarily real estate records. It was, but the medical records were in the real estate file. And why? Because Roberta Walker had been saving them because she didn't trust what was going on. So she was throwing everything. But what was happening was they were trying to settle a real estate transaction deal and sell the house. Right. So all the medical records just happened to be in there. And that's what struck my attention was like, oh, what are these medical files doing in here? And why are these kids have this strange blood work in a real estate file? Good question. So what did you end up concluding? What did you decide PG&E was up to? Well, I thought it was very strange, so I asked if I could go out to Hinkley and meet Roberta. She's my first contact, um, and she was the mother that was out there that had reached out to the firm that PG&E was trying to buy her property. So when I went in and I was talking to Roberta, you know, she brought out the files, and we talked a lot about, you know, the animals covered in tumors, you know, these are just weird, bizarre stories. And I'm listening with great curiosity. And she brought out, again, her real estate files. She had copies of everything because PG&E wanted to buy her house. And it really started off with they weren't paying the right dollar figure. And they wanted to buy other homes. So they kind of started having these community affairs that PG&E put on. Why did they say they wanted to buy the houses? They were getting into the real estate business all of a sudden? No, they were bringing in a new road, and they had to buy. It was really kind of just a a big old lie. Is that what they said? Yeah, Uh that's what they were telling people. Uh So on one of the reports, there was a Dr. Anderson, I remember his name, had written down the word CR6. I thought that was weird, and... Roberta talked to him about it, and he had told her it was hexavalent chromium. Hmm. So there was some records, and I asked Roberta if she had been out to the water board, and she'd said she had, but there wasn't anything. So that was my first introduction to going out to the water board. And it was as I was digging into them, and, and you'll see in the film, I went out there, and to get in, I started to get reports and was reading stuff that was fascinating me. They knew they had a plume. It had gone a good distance, but there was the word hexavalent chromium. So again, something that started to resonate with me. I'm like, what are they hiding? And this is a chemical. What is this chemical? And again, my curiosity started asking questions, talking to experts, making phone calls, and learning the danger of it. And then It kind of started to snowball from there. You know, Roberta would tell me about her family's illnesses. She would tell me about the neighbor who had a dairy farm and all the cows were covered in tumors. And I'd literally go over there and see them. You know, Roberta would tell me here was her swimming pool and the water was green. And every frog that got in there, they were dead. I used to collect them out of her pool. And to be standing there and looking at, Two-headed frogs, green water, cattle covered with tumors, trees dying, hearing these women's story, and and thinking of myself in Kansas. It was like, you know, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore because I don't see this in Kansas. And 
I, I remember somebody from PG&E standing there with me, and uh, I cannot remember the name, and it wasn't a high official, but they're like, well, you're not a doctor or lawyer, I mean, or scientist. I mean, why would you? This is normal. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell you something right now as an outsider. Two-headed frogs and green water is not the standard. It's just not. And everything began to happen from there. Well, you're going up against uh, one of the largest utilities, certainly, in the world, PG&E. How did it feel to be going up against uh, that kind of gargantuan opponent? I don't even know that I made that association. I was very rooted in with the curiosity, uncovering what was going on. Somebody was telling a lie somewhere. People were sick. Animals were dying, and none of it made sense. So I was going to keep going. And I believe, you know, Ed and the lawyers on that side realized who this was uh, and that they were going to legally give them a run for their money. And, you know, I spent a, a year out there before anything was even filed, gathering all the information and evidence and meeting people. And we we quickly realized that they had been poisoned. But proving that was going to be, you know, a, a legal challenge. One of the first documents that I got into in a paragraph told me the whole story. And, you know, when you get into court, you, you've got these dose-response ratios. And, and it's important that people understand if, if you have a contamination in your water, it didn't just show up. You're looking at a contamination and a lower level of a larger number in time. Right. And so when I was out in Hinkley, we knew the levels were still high. But I was fascinated with one of the first documents I read, and it stated that the report was dated 1992, that Pacific Gas and Electric's monitoring wells in Hinkley were still registering 5 ppm. Now, I'd already learned that 5 ppm was declared hazardous waste. And it went on to say that 90% of the chromate had already been removed via domestic and agricultural use. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> if it's 92 and it's 5 ppm and 90%'s been removed, oh my gosh, what was it in the 80s? What was it in the 70s? As time went on and we finally got in, found those documents, and you, there was subpoena requests and everything because it just wasn't sitting around. The first indication of the levels hitting that plume was about 1960, and they were over 20 parts per million. Ding, ding, ding. That explains so much. And so you have to be able to prove that um, in the court of law. So for me, really digging for the records became really critical and uh, getting involved with the employees and you know, they had been poisoned, too. It took a very long time for them to trust me. And this is something that's important that is oftentimes missing, is establishing that trust. How did you do that? Coming back, coming back, coming mm -hmm. back every single day, taking the phone call, bringing them information, having a conversation. To what extent were they worried in a very understandable way that they would lose their jobs? The employees, mm -hmm. well, it took them a while, but once they realized and they started coming to community meetings, so when they start seeing these documents and the employees, the connection they started to make was, is this why my child is sick? 
So there was two employees, and both have now passed, Lily Melendez and Chuck Ebersol, that really came forward. And one way in how they missed it, the hexavalent chromium that was coming into the facility was named Betts 45. So nobody would make the association that Betts 45 was, in fact, hexavalent chromium. So as they would hear me or they'd be able to see a document, they'd go back and then they started looking up Betts 45 and found out it was hexavalent chromium. Then they'd call and tell me. So Mm. it took a while of just showing up, being there, bringing information. And it was hard for the employees to accept. To have someone that's a stranger come in and say, oh, by the way, this person has been hiding information from you and poisoning you and your children for 10 years, that's kind of really hard to wrap your mind around. (laughs) You don't want to believe that, right? Sure. And neither did they. You've mentioned the film, um, Oscar-winning film. What do you think that film has done to change perceptions of corporate responsibility? What I do believe happened is that the film woke people up. It gave us a platform where they woke up and they could see a human experience that they could relate to. When the film first came out, I was shocked. We, We couldn't get into... Every theater we went to, it was sold out. And so the next day I went, and even in the middle of the day, the theater was packed. And I sat in the back of the room, and no one knew who I was. And I listened, and I watched their reactions. Mm -hmm. But on the way out, I was listening to the comments, and they're like, ooh, I wonder if that's just in Hinkley. I wonder how our water is. Hmm. You know, they were asking questions. And so it was that platform that... That I think helped inspire people, empower people, um, and I really hope that they realized you don't have to fit this like idea or standard of if you don't and have this degree as a doctor or lawyer or scientist, therefore you couldn't say anything. I think that was a real shakeup moment. Right. To see an everyday person, uh, unsuspecting, who a lot of times we all feel that way about ourselves, could actually rise up and and push back. And I was so intrigued with what the responses were. And it's been over this time, oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many more Hinkleys we've been involved in that continue to go on. I, I continue to scratch my head. All the issues we're facing today, it's like, what have we not learned? And... I do see a pivotal moment right now where that shift is going to happen, where we are looking at, unless we could talk about glyphosate, you know, roundups, a, a plethora of other chemicals. We could talk about what happened in Flint, Michigan and lead and the outbreak of that across this country. I mean, most people don't know, you know, we've got 200 other sites of lead contamination with levels in some locations higher than Flint. How could that be? I began my work in Hinkley in 1991. That case settled in 1997. I had another case with PG&E, same exact thing, that settled in 2005. And here it is, 2019, and it still goes on everywhere, every day. You've said we're at a turning point, Mm -hmm. yet politically, I think most objective observers would argue that regulation is being hollowed out in the national government. Well, and it is. And because it is, guess what? You know, everyone is afraid of disruption. I'm not. 
because it gets us up off the couch. It gets us involved. We poke our heads over there and we're like, well, wait a minute. Why are you rolling back those regulations? Oh, I don't think that's a good idea. Or I know this much. So the movement is, I don't know if we get comfortable or complacent or we assume that these issues regarding water, lead in water, chromium-6 is just being taken care of. Or we assume that because of the film Aaron Brockovich and there was a big payday that it was uncovered and all is good. Well, that's not true at all. We're still out in Hinkley, California. PG&E lied about it again. The entire town is gone again. The, they bought everything. And so because there's disruption, there's a movement happening. You've mentioned the failure to learn some of the lessons of Hinkley. I mean, since the settlement of the Hinkley case, there have been oil spills, there have been charges that earthquakes related to fracking have spread around the country. There's obviously Flint, Michigan. I know you're not a historian, but help me, who is an historian, Understand why people fail to learn lessons from history. Fear. Fear if they speak up. Uh, you know, I think of all the employees, they're going to lose their job. You know, I, uh, the, the word whistleblower has, is such a bad name, and, and it shouldn't be. But we're, we're bullied. We're told if you say this, you're going to lose your job. That strikes fear at the heart of everyone. I don't want to lose my job. Oh my gosh, I want to send my kid to college. How would I pay my mortgage? And it, it's terrifying because, you know, we're working because we, we want to have a home. We want to feed our children. We want to send them to college. We, we, we want to pay for our insurance. And so if somebody pushes on you and bullies you, I, I think it's a really big deal. Um, we become fearful. And if we're fearful, we shut up. When I work with communities, and I've seen this often, I ask them, because they're not going to talk about it, because, see, they don't want, we judge. And I remember this feeling as a dyslexic, you know, just because you say something, you're different. You know, my mom always taught me, just because you're different or you say something that isn't necessarily scientifically or what other, you know, astute-wise doesn't mean you're inferior. And I think that we, we feel that way. So I ask communities to close their eyes. And I ask them, you know, you've been in this community. We understand we're, we, we are looking at a chemical in your water. And, and we're not going to have the conversation. You don't want to have the conversation because you're fearful that you'll be teased or seen different or the community is going to collapse because the company is going to go away. But I need to know about your health. How many of you have an illness or a disease? And I could have a room of 900 community members. And I tell them, keep your eyes closed, but raise your hand. Mm. And 80 to 90% of the room's hands are up. Mm. And I say, keep your hands up, open your eyes, and take a look around. And that becomes the breakthrough moment. They're like, oh, I'm not alone. <laughs> Uh, I can say something. I'm not going to be told that I'm silly or crazy or this isn't related to this mm. or that. And that becomes the shift when they realize they're not alone. So I think out of fear that, of being isolated or name-called or judged, labeled, perceived, whatever, um, they, they step away. We've spent a good period of time just now talking about destruction, deception, disease. 
Yet you strike me as an extraordinarily optimistic and even hopeful person. How do you keep feeling hopeful? Well, it's funny. Now you know why nobody invites me to parties. (laughs) You know, People, because see, you ask me a question and I'm going to give you an answer. And people everywhere I go will ask me a question about water and it turns into one of these conversations and they're like, oh my gosh, what a downer. Don't bring her again. Um, it is daunting. I, th- by nature, I'm optimistic. Um, I, I, I've just learned, uh, again, probably from my upbringing, you know, when, if I hear a negative, I find a positive, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, keep on going. And so I, and I use post-its and I use positive notes and affirmations. And when I go south, I want to go north. And I, I put them on my my car. I, I just constantly, because I feel the negativity myself, um, and it's daunting and it's draining. And so if I can shift it, I, I will tell you, I felt, um, I don't know, five years ago, that, that deep, um, this is overwhelming and daunting and negative and oh my gosh, I never want to be one to give up. But my first grandchild was born and it completely just reinvigorated me um, about what I will continue to do and the legacy I'll leave for a future for them. Aaron, what is the best post-it in your car right now? <laughs> it goes, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Um, and that's never to get your dauber down. It comes from my mom and my dad. And so... And would you like to explain to our listening audience what a dauber is? Oh, your, your mood, your, your, your mindset. Dauber. Just don't get your dauber down. That was environmental advocate and consumer activist Aaron Brockovich. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks for joining as we delved into the Backstory Archive. There are hundreds of other shows available at our website, backstoryradio.org. You can keep the conversation going online. Let us know your favorite episodes of 2019 or ask us your questions about history. Send us an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, the Johns Hopkins University, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is professor of the humanities and president emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.